0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest fox casting either side of the Breach. On today's programme, we begin a new set of tales from Malafoe. These are stories of broken promises and betrayals, of pitched battles and silent assassinations, but today's story is one of chance meetings in a single room within the Guild Enclave. I hope you enjoy part one of One Room right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you by Mr Silly Clove's Bagels. Mr Silly Clove lovingly forms each ring of doughy goodness himself, then boils them in honeyed water, and finally bakes them in his specially designed coal-fired bagel oven. You haven't tried bagels until you've tried Mr Silly Clove's bagels. One Room by Mason Crawford The Guild Enclave, Break Room C, 6.10am The wheels of bureaucracy never stopped turning, but they did slow to a languid crawl in the early hours of the morning. It would be almost an hour before the clerks and accountants arrived at the Guild Enclave to begin their daily routine, and for now, only a handful of dedicated, obsessed, or beleaguered Guild employees haunted its wide hallways. It was uncertain just which of these categories Sonia Crid fell into. A year ago, it would have been rare to see her at the Enclave in the morning. Many of her duties had involved interrogating captured arcanists, planning ways to subvert the influence of the miners and steamfitters' union, and organizing the investigations and manhunts that protected the people of Malifaux from those with unsanctioned magical abilities. If she came across any tomes or grimoires with particularly interesting bits of new knowledge hidden among their pages, she would bring the book home with her and spend the evening unlocking its secrets over a bottle of whiskey. This morning, however, Sonia was looking over a box of bagels. After spending so long behind a mask, sipping her meals through paper straws, and then the months of intravenous fluids following the fire and McMorning's operations, she still hadn't quite reacquainted herself with solid food. It felt strange in her mouth and she kept accidentally biting her tongue whenever her attention started to drift away from her meal. Reaching out with her hand, Sonia carefully lifted one of the bagels from the box and set it on her plate. She noted with no small amount of satisfaction that her fingers did not shake as she cut the bagel in half, nor did they twitch as she smeared the halves with cream cheese and lox. As she turned and made her way to the room's wide dining table, the new flesh of Sonia's rebuilt face pulled back in a faint smile. It hurt, just enough for her to notice, but McMorning had said that pain was a good sign. It meant that the skin was stretching and that her nerves hadn't fully burned away. All in all, it was looking like a good day. Hola, Sonia. There was another twinge of pain from Sonia's face as her eye twitched. Good morning, Perdida. A dusty, wide-brimmed hat flopped onto the table, as Padita grabbed the chair opposite Sonia, turned it around, and sat on it backwards, arms crossing along the top to support her chin. They haven't seen you since Kitchener went up in that fireball. You're looking... There was a brief pause as Sonia looked up from her bagel, and Padita's eyebrows raised along with her voice. Good? The scars are still healing, Sonia explained, annoyance creeping into her voice. We still have two more operations left before I'm back to looking like my old self. Ah, no, you look muy bien. Petita smiled nervously as she leaned back in her chair. You almost can't tell at all. I almost envy you, né? She raised a hand and pulled at her long, silky black hair. All of this hair is so hard to manage, but with you, you'll just wake up and write to work. This time, the flashes of pain that came as Sonia narrowed her eyes were welcome. Her hair, once as long as Perdita's, had been burned from her scalp when the tyrant Charufe clawed its way out of her soul and turned everything around it into an inferno. It had since started to grow back, but it was still short and patchy in places. No matter what she did with it, it always seemed to be sticking up in the wrong places. In Sonia's mind, she looked like a dog with mange, whereas Perdita looked like a rugged Badlands goddess. Sonia hated her a little bit for that. It must feel good to take off that mask, Perdita said, motioning towards Sonia's face with one of her calloused fingers. Do you still have it, or did you have to get a new one after it burned up in the fire? Sonia finished chewing her mouthful of bagel, looked up at the younger woman, and tried to keep her voice as controlled as possible. Do you think I need a mask, Perdita? Kay? Her eyes flashed wide as she realized how that must have sounded. No, no, I didn't mean like that. Just that everyone knows that you have a mask, ne? Sonia and her mask is almost part of the uniforme. Something to keep me from scaring the children, perhaps. The hand holding Sonia's bagel was twitching now. Right, no! Perdita frantically shook her head and threw her hands up in front of her like a shield. No, that's not what I meant, amiga. You were scaring children long before your face burned off. Sonia's eyes widened in shock, pulling at her stitches and causing blood to bead up at the places where they met the corners of her eyes. The expression was mirrored by Perdita, whose mind was just now catching up with her mouth. Merda, I didn't... Before she could finish her awkward apology, the door opened to admit a woman in tall boots, denim pants, and a functional white shirt that had been left unbuttoned near the collar. Her once-long hair had been cut short, calling even further emphasis to the strip of black fabric tied over her eyes. The shock of seeing Lady Justice's hair, or of not seeing as much of it as they expected, caught both Sonia and Perdita off guard, and left the half-finished quarrel forgotten between them. As usual, it was Perdita who acted first. I like the new look. Perdita hopped up to get a better look. Very modern. Got tired of watching zombie guts out of it, day? Eh? I cut it as a show of solidarity. Justice turned her head towards Sonia. We're all glad to have you back, Sonia. The statement was painful, but only because it caused Sonia's lips to pull back in a smile and her brow to crease with gratefulness. Thank you, she murmured. That means... a lot. Justice nodded, and her expression softened into a faint smile. I'll accept the judge, that is. Without you to keep him in check, he's been winning most of our poker nights. I'll have to show up unexpected this weekend and catch him off guard, Sonia chuckled. Wait, Perdita's smile had started to falter. You two have a poker night? Sonia and Justice exchanged looks. Well, Sonia looked towards Justice, and Justice didn't turn her head away. It was hard to properly exchange looks with a blind woman. Nothing formal, Sonia explained a bit hesitantly. Just something we do every once in a while. Every Thursday night, give or take, Justice looked back to Perdita. For years now. Perdita looked between the two of them, hurt evident on her delicate features. And you didn't invite me. I love poker. Justice hesitated. I thought you knew. She motioned towards Sonia. Sonia said that she invited you to the first game, but... Padita's eyes widened in sudden revelation as her gaze snapped back to Sonia. "'You didn't want me there!' "'Hit your computer, Sonia! I thought we were friends!' "Eh." Sonia raised her hand and wobbled it slightly. "'We're more like co-workers, really.' Padita hooked her fingers into her belt, shoved her chest forward, and lit the fire in her eyes. "'But you and Justice, you're amigas?' Sonia shrugged her shoulders and took a bite of her bagel. She doesn't think I look hideous. Perdita's eyes widened to disbelief. Only because she is blind. Justice's brow furrowed beneath her blindfold. Standing right here, she murmured. You don't even live in the city. Sonia reached up to wipe away some blood from a pulled stitch, then immediately pulled back as she remembered McMorning's warnings about touching her face while it was healing. Should we have sent a rider down to Latigo every time we've made plans? You probably would have been knee-deep in Dead Neverborn anyways. Or hair-care products, she mentally added. Petita opened her mouth, thought better of what she was going to say, and instead leaned past Sonia and snatched her hat from the table. Fine. I know when I'm not wanted. She pushed past Justice, only to spin around and jab a finger at Sonia once she was in the doorway. You are on my list, Pere. The two women were quiet until long after Perdita's rapid-fire Spanish curses had faded into the distance. Finally, Justice spoke. Perdita may not be glad that you are back either. Sonia waved that problem away and motioned behind her. There are some bagels on the counter if you're hungry. Despite being blind, Justice had no problem making her way to the counter, selecting a bagel, cutting it in half, and smearing it with cream cheese. I have to give an interview today. She stated as she sat down opposite Sonia. Marlowe's orders. Ox, I assume? Sonia finished the last part of her bagel and sipped at her coffee. She shook her head. No. Print. A frown tugged at Sonia's stitches as she drummed her fingers on the table. That's odd. Doesn't he know that the Daily Record fabricates most of its stories? It seems like a waste of your time. Sonia almost didn't recognize the emotion that flickered across her companion's face. It was trepidation. It's not an interview with the Daily Record. Then what? Sonia paused as realization hit her. Oh. Justice sighed. The Guild Enclave. Break Room C. 8.45 AM. Lucas McCabe had never quite figured out how to properly navigate the hallways of the Guild Enclave. The irony was not entirely lost on him. He'd stalked through the burial tombs of ancient pharaohs, unerringly wound his way past the devious traps protecting never-born burial sites, and had once even been trapped within the two-dimensional reality of a magical painting. Yet no matter how many times he visited the guild enclave, he always ended up turned around and in the wrong section. He suspected that it might have been some quiet little enchantment placed upon him, or the building by Lucius or the former governor-general. It would certainly be in keeping with their petty brand of politics, And in any case, it was more reassuring than the idea that he just simply could not make sense of a large but otherwise mundane building. He had taken to drawing small maps to the various guild offices on the backs of matchbooks to help him find the way. The habit had gotten him stopped by suspicious guild captains more than a few times, and each of them had given him looks that were almost disappointed once they realized he wasn't trying to smuggle guild secrets out of the Enclave. Once again, the irony of Lucas' life was not lost upon him. Today, though, he had managed to find Lucius' office without much incident. Fortunately, Madison was absent. It was a trivial matter for him to don his cloak of invisibility and slip into the secretary's office, flip up the rug, and scratch out the runes the charm warder had carved into the wooden floorboards. Bastard probably wouldn't even appreciate this, he murmured. Once the deadly runes had been defaced... Lucas just had to establish a cover story, so that the elite division weirdos wouldn't question his name showing up in the logbook. In his experience, the best way to do that was to hit up the accountants and attempt to talk them into getting an advance for his next expedition. A quick glance at the clock revealed that he still had a little over fifteen minutes before their offices opened. With nowhere to be until then, Lucas pulled out one of his matchbooks a rather clever one featuring the image of a winking Colette Dubois on the cover, flipped it open and navigated himself to the nearest break room. He was hoping for a quiet place where he might be able to kick up his feet, smoke a cigar and read the latest bullshit the Guild liked to pretend was news. Instead, he found a slight young woman in a short jacket beating up a coffee machine almost as large as she was. As if to defend itself, The coffee machine seemed to be spewing steam and scalding coffee from various random places at random intervals. Bilious Brewer, give me my coffee! The woman slapped her hand against the side of the machine, then winced from the force of the impact and kicked it in retaliation. Lucas watched her beat on the machine as he pulled out a cigar and scratched a match into flame against his thumbnail. He took a long pull from the cigar, puffed out a cloud of smoke and spoke, Having some problems, miss? The woman just about jumped in the air as she whirled around to face him. She quickly assessed him, taking in his rugged long coat and the rumpled shirt and dirt-stained denim pants beneath it in a single glance. This querulous machine is my problem. Lucas strained his neck toward the machine and puffed out a cloud of smoke. Looks like one of Hoffman's things. Kind of surprising it's giving you trouble. Most of his doodads run like clockwork. He thought about that. Most of them probably are clockwork, come to think of it. The machine, for its part, trembled briefly, released a final cough of steam, and started dribbling hot coffee onto the floor beneath it. The woman hopped back in surprise, and stared at the broken machine for a long moment. It was clearly malfunctioning when I got here, she clarified, the words tumbling from her mouth in a growing panic. Probably the handiwork of a fell organization with dire intentions of disrupting our morning routine. She cast him a sideways glance to see if he was buying the excuse. Lucas grinned around his cigar. Seems that way to me. It's a good thing you were here to shut it down before it exploded and took the entire building with it. Pushing himself off from the wall, he extended his hand. Name's Lucas McCabe, in case the Hoff needs a third party to verify your story. Oh! A wallet appeared in the woman's hands, and a moment later Lucas was holding her business card in his outstretched hand. "'Nellie Cochran, editor-in-chief of the Malifaux Tatler, just like it says right there on the card.' She stood on her tiptoes and peeked over the card's edge as she tapped the words printed on its surface. "'I picked the font out myself. Antique Spikes. It really pins the letters to your mind, doesn't it? Like an antique railroad spike right to the brain, turning deception and subterfuge into truth and heroism.' "'It sure does,' Lucas murmured. After staring blankly at the business card for what seemed like the appropriate amount of time— He tucked it into his shirt pocket and flashed her a charming smile. She was cute in a mousy sort of way, and he wasn't the sort of person to let opportunity pass him by. Well then, Miss Cochrane, since this machine isn't cooperating, how about I make it up to you and buy you a cup of coffee elsewhere? I know a place right around the corner. The offer seemed to completely catch her off guard. That's... not necessary, she finally said, her eyes sliding around the room uncomfortably. I'm not really looking for... The awkwardness was not lost on him. Sorry, if you've got someone you're seeing. Nellie quickly shook her head and waved her arms in front of her. No, 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 nothing like that. It's just that I have this interview soon. And then there's all the work at the newspaper. Being an editor-in-chief is very difficult work. And then there's a preponderance of bellicose journalists who need constant supervision. And guidance, and... By this point, Lucas had his hands up in front of him. Right, got it. Not that I don't appreciate the offer. Fraternity is important among co-workers, and the root of the word is freighter, which means brother. His hands were still raised, as if he expected the fast-talking little woman in front of him to explode at any moment. She was certainly talking quickly enough for it, and he'd seen weirder things in Malifaux. Hell, he'd caused weirder things to happen once or twice. I get the Latin, and I get the metaphor. Brothers don't take each other out for coffee. We're good. Nellie took a deep breath and released it in relief. Okay, and the coffee machine? Lucas took another deep puff of his cigar and flicked the ash onto the ground. Probably a doppelganger, sabotage of the highest order. He hooked a thumb over his shoulder. I'm going to get going. Good luck with your interview. Thanks. She paused, feeling as if she should say something further to finish off the encounter on an expository note. It's with Lady Justice. "'Oh, she'll love that,' he mumbled, as he turned and left the break room, the broken coffee machine and the hyperactive reporter behind him. As he walked down the hallway, he glanced toward the accounting department, and after a moment of deliberation, pulled out a book of matches, checked the crude map, and continued onward toward the exit. His meeting with the reporter was more than enough of an alibi. "'Sir McCabe!' Lucas turned toward the voice only to find a baby-faced guild officer hurrying toward him. "'Sir McCabe!' the boy shouted again. "'We will have to search your possessions before you leave!' McCabe sighed and unslung the satchel from his shoulder. The Guild Enclave, Break Room C, 9.55am Justice was supposed to be giving an interview to a reporter from the Malifaux Tatler. Unfortunately for the reporter... Lady Justice had left the death marshal compound to investigate a potential resurrectionist plot. The difference between potential and probable was very clear in Lady Justice's mind. She had grabbed the top file from the low-priority inbox before leaving her office. It wasn't anything that would normally require her attention, but given the circumstances, she was perfectly happy to spend the day chasing down rumors instead of talking with some trumped-up propagandist. Once she was far enough from the compound that running into the reporter was unlikely, Justice ducked into an empty office, opened the file, and allowed her fingers to trail over the raised bumps typed underneath the printed letters. Her hand paused over a name. She sighed. Maybe talking to the reporter would have been better. File in hand, Justice made her way down into the sub-basement of the Enclave, where the offices and morgues of the Guild Coroner were located. She had been working with Douglas McMorning for the better part of a decade, though it felt like forever, and not in a particularly pleasant way. He was skilled. She had no problem admitting that. But he was also the least professional person she had ever met. His handwriting and paperwork were both sloppy and unorganized, and his dim-witted assistant seemed incapable of keeping track of the corpses under his care, much to McMorning's public exasperation and private apathy. The accountants had considered it a blessing when McMorning's nurses had started filling out his paperwork for him. On the other hand, she reminded herself, he had also single-handedly saved her friend from a lifetime of intense pain and hideous scars. That alone made him an asset to the Guild, and when Marlowe asked her opinion of the Doctor and his unorthodox methods, she had been forced to downplay his eccentricities in favor of his innovative mind and unparalleled surgical skills. That still didn't mean she liked the man. When she arrived at Wint Morning's office his assistant quickly hid something behind a door and stammered out an excuse about the doctor's absence. Justice didn't even let him finish before she was headed back up the stairs in search of McMorning. A brief conversation with one of the desk clerks confirmed that he hadn't left the building, and twenty minutes later, she found the doctor in a break room, kneeling in front of the icebox. Douglas? McMorning shrieked in surprise and bolted upright. His head was deep inside the icebox, however, and he smacked it hard against the roof of the small device and tumbled backwards, clutching his injury in surprise and pain. He landed in a pool of coffee that had spread out from beneath the coffee machine, which was considerably more battered than it had been a few hours earlier. Justice tilted her head as she realized what was inside the icebox. Is that a severed head? What? A head? head? McMorning stumbled to his feet and pushed the icebox's door closed behind him. No! I mean, yes. That is a head in the icebox. Hand still pressed against the back of his head, McMorning smiled at her, although it ended up less comforting and more like an animal showing its teeth in an attempt to ward off a predator. It's not my head, though. I found it. On someone else. The pause. How are you? Love the hair. Her fingers were already rubbing at her temples, trying to banish the headache that was forming behind her eyes. "'The employee box is not an overflow cooler for your morgue.' McMorning didn't know what to do with his hands. They crossed over his chest, then he stuck them in his pockets, then they brushed at the damp coffee stains all along his back and bottom, then they were running through his unkempt red hair. "'I think it might be someone's lunch, truthfully. Maybe Lucius. He certainly seems the type.' He laughed suddenly, as if party to some hidden joke that Justice didn't understand. I'm here to... But I will keep that in mind, he interrupted, his tone suddenly serious. Dutifully noted, Sebastian, write that down. An awkward silence fell between them. They were the only two people in the break room. I'm here to speak with you about this report, she began again. She held the folder out to McMorning. There seems to be a discrepancy with some of the dates listed here. McMorning took the file from her, snapped it open, and quickly scanned the pages. He never stopped smiling. I don't see what the problem is, he finally admitted. You have two dozen corpses scheduled for delivery in three days. Justice looked down and took a step back as the coffee puddle, disturbed by McMorning's flailing, slowly crept toward her boots. He double-checked the file then closed it and held it out for her. That's because we'll be having two dozen corpses arriving that day. I don't see what the problem is. We have corpses arriving. The papers say we have corpses arriving. That's perfectly normal and not at all suspicious. Justice didn't reach forward to take the papers. How you know we'll have corpses arriving three days from now? McMorning's eyes widened, as did his smile. After a moment of silence, the file tumbled from his hand and landed in the pool of coffee on the floor. Oops. Butterfingers. He shrugged his shoulders as he stepped forward and pressed the toe of his boot down on the files, pushing them down further into the dark puddle. I'm sure it's Sebastian's fault. Ever since I removed that part of his brain, he's just been terrible at math. Math and croquet. We tried playing a game in the office once. Had to use femurs and heads instead of mallets and balls. And his aim was just terrible. Not hardly worth the time it took to sink the pegs into the floor. I what? Justice tilted her head in confusion as McMorning went off on a rant. You're playing croquet with heads down there? Lettuce. McMorning giggled nervously. Heads of lettuce? Sebastian's given up on meat, you see. He patted his stomach. Better for digestion. He's a gassy little thing. Covers up the scent of the bodies. But at what cost, I ask you? At what cost? Justice tilted her head to the side. And the femurs? McMorning blinked. The femurs? Do you know how much paperwork it takes to import a croquet mallet from Earth? I think one of the accountants has a bias against the game. Much easier to get a baseball bat. That's odd. Don't you think? More than anything, I think I just want this conversation to end. Justice motioned toward the sodden file. Have your assistant resend the paperwork with the proper dates this time. The doctor's head bobbed up and down. Absolutely. And get the head out of the icebox. He nodded once more. Absolutely. Justice paused and sighed and left, leaving McMorning alone in the break room. Gradually, the smile faded from his lips as he looked down at the file at his feet. That was a close one, eh, Sebastian? No, don't give me that excuse. You almost ruined the entire plan. McMorning carefully slid the scalpel he'd been palming into the pocket of his apron as the voices in his head jabbered at him. Of course she was, he spit back. That doesn't work the first time, and I doubt it would take the second time around either. Besides, where would I find the building? Daintily stepping over the puddle of coffee and the folder floating in it, McMorning shuffled out the door. Well, possibly, he conceded, but that would require getting close enough to stick her with a needle. And in any case, I'm not sure where we'd find the baboon. Maybe Marcus, but... Still murmuring quietly under his breath, the doctor walked back to his office, his original purpose, and truthfully most of his conversation with Justice, forgotten in the murky haze of a new idea. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for part two of One Room.